you're listening to Reba Radio, the podcast. From 18th to the 26th of November 2021, our annual inclusion festival took the form of a dedicated radio station broadcast live from the bookshop at the Reba's HQ in London, with me, Marsha Ramroop, the Director of Inclusion at the RIBA, hosting the discussions. Reba Radio, the podcast, is the speech-only content from that radio station, themed and edited for your easy consumption. We suggest you make your way systematically through all episodes from the intro to the end to help you effectively on your inclusion journey. We hope you enjoy it and find it useful and applicable. You're listening to Reba Radio, real inclusive, brilliant action. You are listening to Reba Radio, real, inclusive, brilliant action for architecture and the built environment. Now, one of our star guests on Reba Radio, author of Motherhood on the Choices of Being a Woman, and We Wish We Knew What to Say, talking to children about race. And the main work we're speaking to her about is sway unravelling unconscious bias. Dr. Pragya Agarwal, welcome to Reba Radio. Hi, good morning, uh, Marsha. Lovely to be here. It's really, really great to have you with us. Uh, rather than doing a, a sort of a bio myself, I wonder if, if you can tell us a little bit about yourself and, and your background as a scientist and author. Yeah, thank you. That's a tri- tricky one because I never know where to start. But uh, yes, as you mentioned, um, I have had these three books come out in the last couple of years. And I am a behavioral and data scientist. I actually, my first degree was architecture back in India. And I came here to do a master's and PhD. And then um, I was an academic in US and UK universities. And then I um, went sort of freelance and um, I consultant and founded a research think tank called the 50% Project, where I work with a number of organizations and institutions around the world on inclusion, diversity, bias, prejudice, power, privilege, all those kind of things to make more inclusive workplaces. Um, and yes, so I'm an author, writer, consultant, scientist. Uh- Fragia, we, we've spoken, we've interacted a number of times. Yes. I don't think I knew your first degree was in architecture. <laughs> I, 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 so, so tell me a little bit about that. Um, you know, what, what got you interested in architecture? So I always had these kind of two sides of the brain, uh, were artistic creative one and a scientific mathematical one. So my, my um, exam school uh, what you would call A-level here. I was in India. I did biology, physics, mathematics, chemistry, English, but I was also doing a lot of art on the side because I was always interested in creative activities. So I kind of, um, it's an interesting story. I never went, wanted to, I never knew much about architecture. Nobody in my family had ever done architecture, talked about architecture. One of my friends was going to go and do the entrance exam for architecture and she didn't want to go alone. So I registered as well. (laughs) She really wanted to be an architect. And so I said, okay, I'll come with you. So I'll register for this exam. I didn't know what it would entail, all those kind of cognitive spatial thinking that you're supposed to do. And I got in. So I I suppose it was was really fantastic result because it really balanced, um, addressed both sides of my brain, the creative 
aesthetic side and the mathematical scientific side and I loved it that's completely crazy <laughs> I think it's brilliant it's brilliant but also completely mad and I, I I you know um just that sense of you know I'll just rock up and help my friend you know keep her company while she does an exam and I'll do it as well that's um oh you're incredible obviously incredibly intelligent and have these all these different sides of your brain and um and architecture you felt really really pulled up all of that and, and stimulated all of that that's uh, it's an amazing amazing story and, and and completely new to me i have to say because normally when you start doing these interviews you think oh i, I know what we're going to talk about that's that's an excellent excellent story and you have been hugely prolific sort of not just clearly your several degrees but um you've got these three books out within what is it the last 18 months um uh, and and you've got another one on the way sounds like it's a birthing process although i understand writing books can be a bit like that and you're so funny on twitter because uh, we all know when you should be writing but you're there tweeting and getting involved <laughs> in social justice issues it's really hard for you to stay out um all these three books they're kind of on this idea of discrimination so so how do you well how do you do it how do you how do you produce three three books in 18 months anyway i suppose there's a lot of rich material out there um we are living in one of those times where um, I mean, it's not new, racism, sexism, misogyny, bias, prejudice is not new, but I think in the last few years, we've had more conversations about it more openly. Um, there is a lot of bias, hidden bias that's come to the forefront as well because of the way we're living in the era, the political times we're living in as well. Um, what's happening here, but all around the world, how polarized we are at the moment, how social media is reinforcing some of those polarizations and divisions as well. So I suppose um, that it's it's never been a better time to really talk about why we have these biases, these prejudices, um, our status, our identities are being threatened, but also our rights uh, as are being threatened as well. Uh, we are slowly moving towards a more kind of uh, autocratic rule at, at times. Um, our rights as women, our rights as people, our rights as human beings are taken away um, in some a, a lot of occasions in lots of places more than others. So I think um, I just think that we really need to have open conversations about it because this is really a crucial time in how we move forward um, in a more equitable manner. So you've written this book, Sway. Can you mm -hmm. actually describe what is unconscious bias? Does it summarise your massive, <laughs> great big book in one one sentence? No. Yes, yeah, so simply if, as as as, you, as much as you possibly can. <laughs> yes. So I I I, I think. Um, when you talk about unconscious bias, it's um, what I mean is these implicit hidden biases that we carry, um, they can manifest in surprising ways in our actions, decisions, and evaluations and judgment of people when we are not aware of them. So we might know that we are slightly prejudiced towards somebody, but we always feel like we all want to be fair-minded. We all want to be egalitarian. We all think we don't have any biases or prejudices against anybody. Um, but they manifest in, in surprising ways, like we stereotype people. So we all make sense of the world in a, in a kind of a template in homogenizing people. But when we judge somebody, we can fall back on those stereotypes, these templates. And sometimes these biases can 
create affinity and confirmation towards certain people so that we are swayed towards some, some decisions of some people more than others. So these are hidden implicit cognitive biases. Not all biases are negative. Some biases are we need to process information, but the biases that make us discriminate against people are the negative biases that we really need to talk about. And uh, the subtitle of the book, uh, Unraveling Unconscious Bias, I really loved because it's got a bit of a double meaning, hasn't it? Sort of, you know, it unravels us, um, but also you, you pull it apart. Um, mm. it, you, I, I brought into um, uh, the conversation a little bit earlier the fact that you use Twitter a lot. Uh, there's a real brevity in the format there. Do you think that there's a bit of a danger that uh, you know we we could be making assumptions a lot from from the brevity of a format like uh, is is prevalent on Twitter. I mean, on one hand, Twitter is, and other social media platforms has made um, things more democratic in a way that not everybody has a voice, not everybody has a platform. So the in these platforms, these social media um, tools can make give people a voice in a platform, those who don't have, especially in the minority. A lot of activism has happened through it. Lots of mobilization of communities has happened through it as well. But on the other hand, yes, there is a downside, as you say very rightly, the, the nuance is lost. The brevity makes it so that often we have to sum up a kind of a, uh, an argument which might be more complex in a very uh, in, in a few characters. So the nuance lost and we often end up being very black and white, the grays, the, the ambivalence, the ambiguities are lost sometimes, which means that there is also this tendency to fall into camps on, on Twitter and other social media platforms. Either we like this person or not, either we like this view or not. There is no way to say, I don't really know my mind just yet. Because people, it, it is an algorithm that favors likes and retweets and the way that your things are amplified. So people are, and it, it makes people addicted to that sense of wanting more likes and wanting more amplification. So people are, are perhaps sometimes more inclined to write things which would get a better response or a greater response, even though it is not really strongly that they believe in. It might be that they don't know enough about it. It might be that they don't uh, want to say, I, I am in this camp or the other camp. So I think you have to choose a side very clearly in some on the social media. So there are pros and cons. Yeah, and, and uh, one of the things that I, I think about when it comes to social media and unconscious bias is the fact that mm -hmm. you do fall into, as you describe them, these camps where your opinion's being confirmed over mm -hmm. and over again. So that confirmation bias uh, and, and that, um, it does it, I suppose the point I'm getting to is to what extent does uh, social media sort of uh, reinforce things like confirmation bias so we create a more polemic society as a result? Yeah, I mean, we know about filter bubbles and echo chambers in real world, but more so on social media, we fall into these kind of, as I said, um, 
groupthink uh, uh, in kind of we we um, have very strong divisions. We might just look for information that confirms our existing belief. We have affinity towards certain views and certain people. It doesn't welcome this notion that, okay, I can follow people who don't like my views or who have diverse views, because there is a very strong sense that if you like somebody who falls into the other camp, then you're kind of betraying the loyalty of one camp or something. So I think that the, you, you can constantly hear your views being echoed back at you, which means that you are never open to diverse views or, or different views and, and actually have a reasoned, reasonable discussion at times. Um, we tend to like and tweet things or retweet things or amplify things which confirms our existing views and beliefs. And that's how the algorithm works as well. So the, these social media algorithms have also have biases built into them. They amplify, reinforce the human biases. But there's a real danger that we are really um, creating these echo chambers for us where we are getting more and more trapped into it. And, um, but, but Pragya, I'm not biased. I'm sure <laughs> I'm not biased. So Pragya, disabuse me of that, that, that notion. So Marsha, that's what I used to think as well. <laughs> I think all of us want to believe that, but we, we are all biased. We are human and we are all biased because we, we need, as I said, we need some of these biases or these templates or stereotypes to process information in the real world because when information is we are bombarded with information more so than with all these social media platforms but also in the real world with digital media everything we cannot our brains just don't have the capacity to process all this information on a rational manner so we make very quick hasty impulsive decisions from what is called the system one processing where we match the incoming information to the templates we formed in a way and we do form templates because that's how we make sense of the world we cannot have the whole mental map of the whole world we prioritize certain things we give weight to certain things we homogenize information and so we have these templates and which which are like act, uh, like stereotypes so we, it depends on our experiences, it depends on our the way we've been brought up, the communities we've lived in, the TV we consume, the media we consume, the newspapers we read, everything creates these things. So we might not think that we have certain preferences or priorities, but we all do that. We're joined by the brilliant Dr. Pragya Agarwal, the author of Sway, Unraveling Unconscious Bias. We've been talking about what is unconscious bias, who's biased, everyone's biased, um, uh, Pragya, and, uh, and, and some of the ways that that manifests itself. Um, not so long ago, unconscious bias, I mean, it, to, to some extent it still is, you know, it's a real buzzword in the EDI world. You know, where did that come from? What was all that about? I'm trying to think back, but um, I do remember that when I started writing Sway um, way back in 2018, one of the motivations was that it was becoming um, sort of a buzzword in the business world, at least. Um, we we heard Hillary Clinton mention it during her campaign. We saw Prince Harry talk about it in Vogue, and we I was seeing more articles about it in Forbes and Harvard Business Review, especially in the business world. Um, I think that is one of the concerns that I had about how perhaps people were using it in a kind of a very tokenistic, superficial way, rather than understanding how biases are formed and how they manifest in many different ways, rather than just racism and sexism in very explicit manner. Um, and I just wanted to address it from a very interdisciplinary perspective that these biases are formed, how they're formed in our brain, 
how they manifest in very different ways without us realizing, and what impact it has on society and individuals. So uh, I, I've had a one-off training course, Pragya. I spent two hours talking about unconscious bias. I'm fixed, am I not? Did you get a certificate, Marcia? Because I think that's... <laughs> I, that really... I think I did get a certificate. <laughs> so now you're absolved of all responsibility, all bias. I don't think it works like that, unfortunately. Sorry to be bringing the bad news. But, <laughs> but um, I don't think we can really completely erase or eradicate biases or any unconscious bias, because as I said, some of these cognitive biases are there to process information, the way we work in the world. If I want to go and buy cereal today, I can't stand there for the whole day weighing up the pros and cons in a very rational manner of each cereal. I will fall back on some of my previous biases and preferences and, and experiences and memories of why a particular cereal works better in my family and not. Or for instance, if I go and buy an ice cream, I have a particular preference for it. But these kind of biases don't have any negative really kind of impact unless the other ice creams feel bad about it or feel that they are discriminated against. But, uh, but in terms of humans, when we are making these decisions, some, some of these, these biases or previous experiences or the, what we sometimes tend to call our gut instinct even, which is not a gut instinct because that's also falling back on some of our previous experiences and these kind of things that have been built up, these, these data bank um, can really have huge impact, especially in some of, if you're making really critical decisions like in the healthcare domain or in a criminal justice domain or even um, in, um, in hiring or recruitment. And, and I think they, they can lead to Preferring, preferring somebody who we have more affinity with or who we feel more aligned with than other rather than an objective evaluation of mm. the situation. Mm. And, uh, well, see it here next, uh, bias ice cream coming your way. Um, I, I, one of the, the, the references I tend to make is um, a couple of years ago, a group of academics, Forsha Lai et al., they aggregated into one um, 492 studies on whether unconscious bias awareness one-off interventions worked. And there were like 90,000 participants uh, with that aggregation. And what they discovered with that uh, research was that um, what you think might change a little bit, but what you did doesn't really. And, and so they, uh, certainly um, Calvin Lai, one of the authors behind that report, suggested that you shouldn't try, you shouldn't try to change your bias. You need to do other things. What, what are some of those other things that people need to think about doing? Yeah, very rightly. I mean, uh, uh, first of all, there's no specific tool that we really have to change our bias or to to train ourselves out of implicit biases. Even the one that everybody tends to use, the implicit association test, it was never meant to really train people out of biases. What it does is works on, very simplistically speaking, it works on associations. So if I say apple to you, would you think red or green? Those are the kind of associations we make in real life between concepts. So that is what it highlights, what we have association with. When we think of a black man, do we think of a criminal more than white man? Those are some of the associations people have built up and that leads to discriminatory attitudes. And so even I spoke with Calvin live and I did wrote a, a piece for new scientists last year for in August uh, about 
whether these kind of tools or training works or not. And yes, it, it doesn't. What it does, it highlights some of the biases that it might have, but it also very contextual and people can learn how to play these tools as well. So you can ace the test, so to speak, if you take it again and again. Um, what happens is that in the first instance, people get aware of, become aware of these biases. So it might feel like we are becoming more biased because they are reinforcing some of the biases we have, which we didn't know of before because of the associations we, we, we see on the screen. Um, and that is the first stage of, of actually being uncomfortable because people don't like to be uncomfortable. Our brains don't like to be uncomfortable. So we tend to kind of ignore that often, or people might say, oh, we are aware of it, but I, I don't think I have that anymore, or I'll work on it, or, or, or things like that. And so we tend to go back into the more comfortable stage, um, rush back to it without actually taking the time to reflect on why we carry these associations, what we can do about it. So there are lots of other things we can do, which is reflective listening, which is critical thinking, which is being more aware of our situation and surroundings, educating ourselves, reflection, and empathy and trying to understand that people have different mental models of the world and different perspectives. And all these things take time. There's no quick fix like taking a one hour or two hours test. So often people think, give me a quick fix to get rid of my unconscious bias. But it doesn't work like that. It mm -hmm. has to be an ongoing process because our mindset takes time to change and rewire in a way um, these, these associations. So once we become aware, we can put a gap between holding the stereotypes and activating the stereotypes, but it takes time. And um, really, crucially, of course, cultural intelligence does help with this. <laughs> um, I myself took the IAT um, test, the impl implicit association test, which anybody can do by um, going to, I think it's a Harvard, uh, it's a Harvard website. And so yes. just Google it, IAT Harvard. And um, I, I actually wasn't surprised, but I, I, I did age. I, well, I did a, a lot of them and I also did race. And I wasn't surprised that even though I'm, I'm a woman of color myself, I'm from an underrepresented racialized group, I was preferenced moderately towards white people. So it doesn't mean that just because you come from an underrepresented group that you are um, biased towards that group in any, any way or form. Uh, why, why would that have been? Why, why would I have come out in that way? Because we have to think about how these systemic and structural hierarchies in our society have existed for a very long time. We are deeply rooted in this, embedded in this. We internalize some of these messages. So yes, whiteness is a norm in our society. Male or masculinity is a norm in our society. So we also internalize these messages that this is better. And I know that within underrepresented minority ethnic community, colorism exists as well, where because of the long history of imperialism and colonialism, we have internalized these messages that fair skinned is more beautiful or superior, <clears throat> which means that we, we can actually be biased against people of darker skin as well within our communities. As, and there is a lot of research to show that. So, so unconscious bias can be externalized, but also internalized, which doesn't mean that we cannot be biased against our own community because we can believe in these messages that men are better or, 
or a white skin is better or more superior. Um, and women can show bias against other women as well. And it's been proven through research as well. Similarly, darker skinned or minority ethnic mm. people can also believe that proximity to whiteness can give them more opportunities in life. Mm, really interesting. So how so that those IATs, it's one way of measuring. Uh, is it useful to measure our unconscious bias? And it, apart from the IATs, like, is there anything else we can do to to bring those out of ourselves? I think um, people do like, the, especially businesses and organizations sometimes like having these quantifiable things like scores. So I used to be 1.2 and now I'm 0.9 or 0.5. So I reduced my bias. But as I say, these are not really reliable measures. What is it? it's showing you is that in this particular moment, when you were sitting here right now, you did a test or an on-screen associative things, and this is what you came up with. That doesn't mean that if you did it in a different context and different mindset, if you were more rushed or distracted or in a hurry, or you'd been primed with some other information. So for instance, if you saw a negative media report about um, a black man, uh, being a criminal or or somebody, a terrorist incident, which shows a darker skin person um, doing something violent, then you're primed with that information and that can impact how you take these tests or respond to some of these answers. So it's all very contextual. And, and yes, people do like these quantifiable measures, but there is no measure for how we hold these these impressions in our mind about our attitudes and beliefs. All we can go by is how we respond to real world information and what decisions we make. So um, in terms of things like that, those uh, unconscious bias, they have a real world impact, don't they? Some yes. of those things about seeing black people and saying that they're, they're criminals. Um, how, how do we overcome that as a society even? Yeah, I mean, it's a big question. And <laughs> Sorry about that. <laughs> but, but, you know, we have to, we have to start somewhere. I think the more we become aware that, yes, the way that media represents some of the information and the messages we get around us, it's like a smog that exists. And we are constantly absorbing these messages. So I give an example about after, the, after Hurricane Katrina, there were two news articles that came out quite um, close by. One showed a photograph of a black man, a uh, young black man wading through flood water. And the headline said, a, a man um, wades through flood water after looting a grocery store. And there was another photograph that came out with two white people, similar situation in the flood waters. And it said two people find bread and soda or find after finding bread and soda in the, in the grocery mm -hmm. store. And the journalist actually admitted that they had no idea of the context or what had happened before, whether somebody had looted or found it. But just that word can reinforce some of the biases that people have or create new biases by people thinking actually black men loot and white people find. And so that's a very simple example, but a powerful example of how the words and images around us can can create these biases and stereotypes. So it's always around us and we have to rethink in a way, our, our kind of rewire the way we think about society. And we need to think about wh how, what is our perception of these hierarchies in society? Who is at the top and who's at the bottom? And this starts from a very young age. And that's why we need to start talking to our children about systemic and structural hierarchies and biases and prejudices from a young age, even though we might think these are very complex topics. 
in what way can we really hope to see change? Because how effective really can we be at changing our bias? I think we have to understand that our biases manifest in many different ways. So for instance, just as a simple example, um, uh, we might be, we might have a status bias. We might think that certain people, certain writers, certain architects are, are, are much better than others because, because, because just the way we, we've seen society. And once we start associating status with somebody or a person or a community, then we create a halo bias around them, which we means that we only think about their positive attributes all the time. So which architects do we read about? Which architects do we consider a, a kind of milestone landmark uh, people in, 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 in art history or architecture history? Which, um, which books do we read? Which authors do we consider important? Which authors do we teach? Which architects do we teach when we're talk, talking, um, teaching? So all that, how we design our curriculum can also have biases inbuilt in them, which we are reinforcing by passing on that information, which means that certain pre people or certain groups of people are, are marginalized or othered or not given as much significance. So we can start very small as well. We can start in our everyday about the books we buy, the, the TV we consume, the media we consume. We, we also get our book recommendations and TV recommendations and Netflix recommendation from our echo chambers, which means that everybody's just talking about the same people. And that can also reinforce this kind of majority um, uh, status. And also how we know that Global South, authors from Global South or writers or architects or uh, can also be marginalized because of that. Mm. So I, I think everything that we do, we can reflect on why we are giving more importance to a certain thing or a certain person than the other. Is it something that is that we, we don't, we can't explain? Can we not rationalize that decision? Can we say, oh, it was just an instinct or a first impression, or is it because it's always been done like this? All those kind of things can be based in our biases or these legacy of biases that we built in. So I think every change matters, every little thing, every conversation that we have matters. Um, in hiring and recruitment, for instance, we can think about how we can remove groupthink. When we hire people, are we hiring for workplace culture or workplace fit? Because that also reinforces this idea that there are only certain kinds of people who would fit into this workplace, which means that we are only hiring people who look like us or think like us or act like us. Um, I mean, it's a, such a big conversation about what we can do, but also diversity and inclusion are two very different things. We can have a very diverse workplace, but we might not have a very inclusive workplace, which means that not everybody has the same sense of belonging. Not everybody can be their complete selves. They have to adapt their hair, their clothes, their behavior, their mannerisms, their accent to fit in. That is not inclusivity. Inclusivity is where everybody has a right to be themselves and everybody feels a strong sense of belonging to their workplace organization society, community. So I think all those kind of things when we start thinking about, it is about changing our values and ethos and being very explicit about it. Mm. 
Um, and it's it's about saying we value inclusivity, not just diversity. Mm. And all the, a lot of those things that you spoke about there, inclusive recruitment, architectural education, uh, that decolonization, if you like, of the curricula, yeah. uh, all of those things uh, we will be talking about on, on Reba Radio over the next 20, 28, well, 26 hours now uh, as, as, as we go through our, our programming. Uh, so, you know, watch out for that. Um, you mentioned a little bit earlier about AI. Um, and as technology uh, technology changes, we we turn to AI. You know, how can how is that really going to play out in our in our world? Do you think? Yeah, I may I, I wrote a lot about it in in Sway, and I'm this is something I'm really interested in because that's my background about human centered AI and effective computing and technologies and how we make things more usable. Um, and in that also, we take certain things as a norm. So technology or data is built around a norm. And it is also a matter of power and privilege. Who builds these systems and who are they designed for? Who collects this data? Where is the data collected? Whose data is collected and represented? That will get, that will create the norm in the technology. So we, what we have to understand is these technologies are embedded in our society, so they're never free from biases. The data that machine learning algorithm is trained on has biases inbuilt in them. Uh, the technology that's designed by the teams have biases, of course. So if the teams are not very diverse, um, they're mainly middle-class white men, then that will go into the technology and system. And we need, know that from not just AI systems, but in like everyday systems and technology as well. So yes, we've heard a lot about racism in facial recognition technology. I wrote an article for Prospect. I have some things in Sway as well. Um, and I know that now that organizations in the last year, especially after George Floyd's murder and Black Lives Matter has have reevaluated that and have actually banned, some of the organizations have banned it. But, um, but we know that even like, um, um, Soap dispensers don't recognize dark skin as effectively, so they are racist soap dispenser. I have a video in one of my talks. Um, and we know that automated cars um, don't recognize darker skin pedestrians, so they are more likely to run over darker skin pedestrians. We know that when I went to get a passport photo taken in one of the photo booths, it kept on saying, um, your mouth is open and you're smiling. And I wasn't, I was just sitting there in the, my worst, saddest, most melancholic face in the world with my mouth <laughs> closed. But it is so all these things, it. Wow. Yeah. And also we know that the UK passport website has had problems that they doesn't recognize darker skin uh, photographs. It always keeps saying the error is that, we, that there are no edges. So these are very simple examples of how everyday technology can other people and marginalize people because it's built around a certain norm, a normative value. So of course it is it's going to have a huge impact. Uh, and these are very simple examples, but then they're bigger examples like in criminal justice system, people are ranked according to the previous offenses in America, there was this system being used about whether they're high risk or low risk. And it was found that they were classifying darker skinned black people as more high risk, even if they didn't have as big offenses in the past as, as white men. So, so all this data goes by history and how the data is being trained on. And, and so, so it, it really affects, it can have small term impact, long term impact and bigger impacts like in criminal justice system or healthcare, who's being diagnosed, who's being treated, what kind of medication they're being given. 
but also in, in everyday uh, systems and technologies that we use as well. So I think we really need to examine um, how we design these si systems and technology, whose data is being collected, which data is being collected, what are the teams like, um, and the notion of power and privilege, I think, is really, really important. Mm. Being able to stop and slow yeah. down and consider those questions are going to be really quite key to the way that we actually move forward and take those next steps, aren't they? Absolutely, absolutely. So, um, you know, what do you say to those who use unconscious bias as an excuse for their discriminatory behaviour? I, I don't think we can justify or excuse it. Um, we are responsible for our actions and that's the first step to be accountable, to be responsible, to acknowledge that, yes, I might have bias and to also not think of our intent because often we can excuse things by saying, oh, actually I don't have any, in, I didn't have any intent or I didn't mean it like that. And I also feel like people take offense at being called a racist or sexist and that becomes a bigger thing than the impact is had on some people so my slogan always is we need to think about the impact rather than the intent we need to think about the impact it's having on other people and i think the moment we start doing that we build more empathetic connections and 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 create a non-judgmental space where we can really evaluate our attitudes and beliefs you're listening to reba radio Real Inclusive, Brilliant Action.